Well, good morning, and it is so good to be back with you uh, today. Um, it feels like I've been gone forever, uh, but it really hasn't been that long, I don't guess. But I do want to just say a special thank you to Ben and to Kevin for their ministry and for their word from God over the last two weeks while my family and I have been on vacation. And so, listen, if you have not had a chance to watch their sermons, I just want to encourage you to go online, collegeroad.org, and go check out the last two weeks, the messages that they brought in the midst of our Urban Legend series. And I think you'll really be, uh, it'll just be a tremendous blessing to you if you would do that. And as a matter of fact, since we're talking about um, the fact that that would be a blessing to you, I want to talk to you this morning about how to be blessed. Now your first response may be, wait a minute, I thought today's sermon was another of our Urban Legend sermons about whether or not God wants us to be happy. And yes, that is true too. Here's the thing. The interesting thing, when you look at the passage of Scripture we're going to be in today, in Matthew chapter 5, is there's a word, blessed. We typically, when we're reading this passage of Scripture, instead of saying blessed, we say blessed. But that word, blessed or blessed, is the Greek word uh, makarios, which, which means happy. Jews use the term to describe a person in the state of salvation, someone with the blessing and favor of God on their lives. They were experiencing the joy of their salvation and the blessings of God. And when you get to Matthew chapter 5, and beginning in verse 1 and down through all the way through the end of chapter 7, you're in what is typically called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaching on the Mount of Olives to a great crowd of people. And so uh, what happens here is he begins with something we typically call the Beatitudes. And, and it's interesting, there are, especially in the first 12 verses, there are eight of what we would call the Beatitudes, descriptions of a saved person's heart. A heart that is blessed by God. A heart that is filled by God. In other words, a happy heart. Now, let me warn you. As we look at this passage of Scripture, like with many of them that we've looked at through our Urban Legend series, what Jesus is going to say about a happy life is going to be completely upside down from anything that you would hear in the world about what a happy life looks like. This is not the way the world talks about being happy. That's what makes this statement, God wants us to be happy, an urban legend. Not necessarily that it's wrong, but that we typically use it in the wrong way. Most of the time when somebody says that to me, hey, Alan, God wants me to be happy, or pastor, God desires for me to be happy, most of the time what they're trying to do is they're trying to justify doing something or something they've already done that they know they shouldn't do because it makes them feel good and God clearly wants them to feel good. And so it's always an excuse. It's always a justification to say, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but ultimately it's okay because God wants me to be happy. I'm going to leave my wife for this other woman because, well, ultimately God wants me to be happy. I'm going to be gluttonous and eat lots of food. And listen, sometimes we're preaching to the choir. I understand. I struggle with this. But, but sometimes what we're saying basically is, I know that I shouldn't do this. I know that I should treat my body better. 
but God wants me to be happy, so it's okay for me to eat these things because they taste good, and that's what matters the most. It's okay for me to keep money for myself instead of giving it to those who I know should have it, whether you're paying for things or whether you're stealing things, because ultimately I need this in order to be happy, and God wants me to be happy. But here's the thing. That couldn't be any further from the way Jesus is using or framing happiness for the believer. A few years ago, we took our kids to Legoland in Winter Park, and it was a lot of fun. We, we had the kids at that time were the perfect age for that particular theme park. Uh, and one of the things that the kids can do at Legoland is they can go to driving school and they can drive those little Lego cars around this track and they can learn all about different signals and signs, stop signs, yield signs, red lights, green lights, all of those different things, pedestrian crossings, right-of-ways, and they can practice how to drive these little Lego cars and they can get their license. Well, only our three older kids were old enough to actually participate in that. And so uh, while we were watching Will and Emma and Drew drive around the driving schoolyard, Kate was tugging on our leg to go to a, a little popsicle stand that was right outside of where this particular ride was at. And she really wanted to go get a popsicle or an ice cream bar or something like that. And she, she was just, she was begging. And we were telling, no, baby, we'll go do that in just a minute. But we're watching them right now. Well, ultimately, Kate decided that that wasn't good enough for her, so she was going to go for a walk. And it was one of those rare occasions. I, I hope it's rare anyway, as I think back about it right now after I've said that, I think maybe this has happened more than really I would like to admit, but it was one of those rare occasions where Beth thought I was watching Kate, and I thought Beth was watching Kate, and in reality only Kate was watching Kate, and so Kate decided to go do what she wanted to do, even though we had already told her that wasn't what was best. We, we were even there with two of our friends from North Carolina who had come down, they were part of our previous church where, we, where I pastored in North Carolina, and they'd come down visiting, and none of the adults that were in this party actually saw her leave. And ultimately, when we realized she wasn't there, we were frantic. Now, she had walked all the way back to that concession stand area that she'd asked us to take her to because she wanted a popsicle. And even though we told her no, she decided that, well, you were going to do it anyway, eventually, so I just wanted to go take care of it myself. Now, when she got over there, she realized she couldn't get a popsicle because they're not just handing them out for free. And then she didn't really know what to do. She didn't know how to get back to where we were. But she did that because she wanted to do what she wanted to do instead of what we had instructed her to do. She would have gotten the popsicle. She would have gotten everything that she'd wanted if she'd done it the way that we did. And in this particular way, you know what she ended up with? Nothing, because we weren't going to reward her disobedience by giving her something that she disobeyed us in order to get. That was not the way that was going to work. But then you look at passages of Scripture, like Psalm 37, 4, and it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly now if you just read these verses out of context on the surface it certainly seems like jesus wants to be our genie in the bottle but what is he really saying is he really saying whatever you want i'll give it to you whatever makes you feel good i want you to do it i want you to be happy no matter the cost well 
clearly that's not what he's saying. And what he is actually saying in those verses is what we're going to see here today. And it may not be what you think. At, the, at first glance, it may seem like, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with my happiness, but it has everything to do with your happiness. It has everything to do with your joy. It has everything to do with your life in Christ. So first of all, when we're talking about happiness, when we're talking about being blessed, what do we mean? Here's what we see first. God will bless you because of your character. It really does matter who you are. More importantly, it matters whom you belong to. It matters, it matters who is your master. And ultimately, if your master's you, you're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time being fulfilled or satisfied. And let's look at this together. We'll just read the passage and we'll walk through one by one these different descriptions of what it means to be blessed by God. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and this next whole section, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of, of the book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he taught them, and he started with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I just want to take just a little bit. I want us to walk through each one of these. There's eight of them here as we kind of look at what Jesus starts off, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really important because everything that flows out of this section is ultimately going to be dependent upon what he has said here. You're not going to get anything else out of the Sermon on the Mount if you miss this portion of it. And actually, when you look at these eight descriptions, here's what you find. The first one kind of feeds all the rest of them as well. So speaking of and thinking about character, does God really want us to be happy? Yes, he does, but in a very particular way. And, and here's the first thing he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's a question for you. Do you feel like nothing without God? Do you feel like nothing without God? I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this first one because it's really kind of the key to understanding all of the rest of the others. And a matter of fact, once you get this first one, the others kind of fall into place. If you understand this, you'll understand everything else he's going to say. Poor in spirit here means that you embrace daily dependence upon God for all that you need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize they should be totally dependent upon God for everything in their life. Poor in spirit means that you don't feel like you have sufficient resources in yourself to face life's challenges. There are actually two Greek terms that are translated poor in Scripture. One of them, as we would understand, has to do with being financially poor. But that's not the term he's using here. The other term that can be used that's translated as poor has to do with being an outcast of society or being despised, the kind of people that are spit on, 
by others in society. That's actually the term that he's using here in this particular uh, sermon. Those that are despised for how weak they are end up being the ones, he says, who inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because God fills empty hands. Which means that if you're convinced of your own righteousness and your own goodness and you're, you're confident in yourself, then you're not going to receive the gift of the righteousness of God because why do you need it? You're already good. Now, you can actually apply this principle uh, across a broad spectrum of the Christian life. Okay, Remember, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So when you begin to think you're something, when you think you've arrived, when you think you've got it all together, that's when you're the most vulnerable to being depressed and downtrodden and to not feeling happy. And there's many reasons why, but think about it this way. Think about all of the different things that you can be very confident in yourself. I'm a good parent. I'm a good spouse. I'm really good in my career. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good deacon. I'm a good pastor. The moment you begin to feel like you've arrived, that you don't need any help, is the moment where you begin to miss God's blessings and provisions because His provision and blessings not based on how good you are. It's based on how good He is and you recognizing your need for Him. When you think you're good, you begin to become entitled and self-focused and nothing will ever satisfy you and you will never be happy because you will always feel like the world or God owes you. So if you don't realize your need to be totally dependent upon God for all the provisions of your life, then none of the rest of these things that we're going to look at here in a minute are going to make much difference in your life. Because you don't understand that your happiness, your joy, your peace, your satisfaction, your fulfillment doesn't come from things, it comes from Him. In other words, you can't accomplish any of this on your own. You must be totally dependent upon Him. You must be completely and totally poor in spirit so that you can experience the victory in Christ. Then he takes us to this next one. It's very closely related. Do you mourn that you are spiritually poor? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our reward is in heaven. But here... This closely related to it, do you actually mourn the fact that you're spiritually poor? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us here why we're mourning. There can be a lot of different reasons. Some of them are pretty clear. Mourning obviously goes along with the idea of being poor in spirit. When you feel powerless, when you feel weak, when you feel unrighteous, you mourn. You want to be more for God. You're embarrassed. You feel guilty for the fact that, that you're not everything that maybe you even want to be. And what happens? God comforts you. But I also think here that based on Jesus' future teachings in a lot of different areas, that mourning really has to do also with a willingness to enter the pain of others, to mourn with them, to open your life up to people, to recognize you're nothing without God, but because of God, you, you can actually come alongside other people that are hurting and that are going through difficulty, and you can mourn with them. You, can, you can't fix all their problems, but you can, you can enter into their pain with them. Mourning means being relationally connected 
to others. If you don't open up your life to other people, then you're not going to experience the blessing that God wants to give to you for your willingness to mourn. As we get older, and I've noticed this in myself a lot, the trajectory of our lives is actually to get more and more isolated, not to open ourselves up to more people. We don't want to connect with our neighbors. We don't want to open our lives to the needy. Sometimes being in a life group feels like a pain because oh, I, I, I don't want to have to deal with people. I don't want to be around folks. I don't want to invest in them. I, I'm not interested in what they have to say because we don't feel like we need other people. But we, we kind of have this mentality. If you just give me my home, if you just give me my hobbies, if you just give me my kids, my grandkids, and that's all I'll need for a happy life and just stay out of my life. And just keep the rest of the world away. Jesus is saying, actually, you'll never really be happy that way. Because as your heart closes itself off or closes in on itself, it gets darker and more self-focused. And you'll never be blessed by God. You were designed to pour yourself and your life into others and to mourn with those who mourn. To weep with those who weep. To, to be blessed by God because of your willingness to do what He has done for us. So, blessed are those who open their hearts and their homes to take in the pain of others. Not only will you be happier in this life as you enter into the pain of others, but you'll be eternally comforted, according to this passage, for leveraging your time, your talent, and your treasures, not for yourself, but for other people. You're never more like God than when you're investing in other people and not in yourself. That's what he did for us. Do you mourn that you're spiritually poor? That you in and of yourself can't do it, but because of what God's doing, you actually can be a blessing to other people. Here's another question. Do you openly live as you truly are? It, are you willing to let yourself be vulnerable and open to others? That you're investing in them, you're sharing in the pain with them, but what about letting them into your life as well? Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, there's a lot of people out there who, who, don't, who don't give off at all the impression that they need anyone else. They always want to be the one that's in authority, that's in power, that has the, the kind of the high ground. And, and so we don't need other people. That's why we stay away from life groups. That's why we don't get involved in church. That's why sometimes we don't attend worship services. We don't need anyone else. We've got it all figured out. But God says, no, blessed are the meek. See, meekness means being willing to take second place instead of first place whenever you can. And it's not just talking about your relationship with God. You should always put Him first. This is talking about in our relationship with other people. Leverage your power, your authority, to serve others, not to exalt yourself. Blessed are those who are willing to take whatever authority they have and use it to bless other people. And we're not afraid to humble ourselves. We're not afraid to live in humility and in front of other people. When you take the role of servant, when you take that second place role, that's when God exalts you. That's exactly what he said about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. God has highly exalted him above all others that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know the first few verses before that actually reminds us of how Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death. Here's how I understand it a lot of times when I, when I read this. Think about it from a parent's perspective. 
Imagine seeing your kids split their lunch with a kid that's less fortunate. Maybe it doesn't have lunch. He gives him half his sandwich. He gives him three out of his five Oreos in the packet that, that he comes. Now, how do we feel? When, when we find out that our kid was willing to share in the burden of someone else, unprompted, saw a need, met a need, are you frustrated or are you proud? If you're like me, then you say, wait a minute, you gave away three Oreos? I'll buy you 300 packs of Oreos. Because ultimately, we want to be able to bless our children because they were willing to set themselves aside and to bless other people. This is what God does. This is what He does in this life for us and in eternity. God desires to pour out His blessings on us and He he showers us with His blessing when we're willing to take a step back and say, no God, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm not worried about myself. Let me meet the needs of others. How would your life look different if you would not always try to put yourself first, but if you put others first? See, this is where true happiness comes from. And this is not the way the world frames it. When people say to me, God wants me to be happy, what they're really saying is, God wants me to be first. Everybody else can be second. God wants me to be first. And sometimes when we think we're doing a really good job, we even expect God to do those things for us. And when He doesn't, hey God, why do I not have everything that I want? Why are you not doing everything that I ask you to do? Why is my, not, why is my life not exactly the way I want it to be? And sometimes we need to work on our humility and our meekness and recognize God didn't call you to be first. God called you to find your joy and your fulfillment and your satisfaction in Him. Here's another question for you. Do you desire to be righteous? Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means to crave fellowship with God above everything else. Not only that you're dependent upon Him, but you want to be with Him. You want to be more and more wrapped up into your intimate relationship with Christ. Now, we're all hungry, but we don't all try to feed that hunger in the same way. Sometimes we try to feed it with money or relationships or the approval of others, but none of those will actually work. Money can't do it. You'll never have enough. It's not big enough. You'll always want more. Romantic love can't do it. No one really can complete you, not the way you need to be completed. They're never going to be enough. And that's when, in many instances, when we find out they're not enough, we try to move on to somebody else that we think can fulfill that need. Well, here's the reality. No human will ever be enough to complete you the way you need to be completed. Approval of others will never do it. It will never fill that void in your life. As a matter of fact, the more approval of others you get, the more your pride swells, and ultimately the more you expect. And when you don't get it, you know what happens? You don't continue to feel justified what you what you begin to feel is that you didn't get what you deserved and we sometimes spiral into a state of depression pride or depression if you're looking for your identity and the approval of others but when you feed that longing with the right relationship that you were designed to have with your creator not only are you satisfied but you actually become a radiant life giving person to those around you they begin to see the joy of christ in you and probably even wonder where does that come from how can they find joy and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in this life where i know everything's not perfect i know they don't have all the desires of their heart 
How is that possible? It's only possible if you're dependent upon God and if you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's another question for you. Do you show mercy to other sinners? It's important to be reminded that you are a sinner. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's good news. The merciful are those who extend forgiveness or, in some instances, generosity, meeting the needs of others to the same measure it's been extended to them. What if God forgave your sins only according to the measure that you forgive others? That may be what this seems like it's saying. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. If you're merciful to others, then God will be merciful to you. If you forgive others, then God will forgive you. But that's not actually the way he's saying it here. It just kind of comes across that way to us. Those who know they have been forgiven show that by forgiving others. We know what we've experienced in Christ. We can't help but pass it along to other people. So you could say that whether you have really experienced mercy will actually be demonstrated by how much mercy you show to others. The people that recognize the full benefits of the grace and mercy of God are generally those who are the most generous to other people. Because we just can't get over how much God has done for us. Here's another question for you. Do you live one life or two? Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. We're not double-minded. We're not two-faced. We're pure in heart. What you see on the outside is what you get on the inside. You know what grieves God? Impurity. Sin. There are lots of reasons we might try to avoid sin, but maybe the most powerful one is we want to know God. We want to draw close to Him. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 reminds us that your sins have separated you from God. Your iniquities have hidden His face from you so He can't even hear you. It is our sin that separates us. You can't pursue God and tolerate sin it doesn't make sense you, you can't have two masters can't serve yourself can't serve the world and serve God if you're one of those in here who have things that you persist in even though you know that they are wrong you still know God then you need to get rid of the illusion that you can continue to tolerate that lifestyle and experience the blessings and favor and joy of God. He pours that out upon those who are drawing near to Him. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about you obeying the Ten Commandments exactly every time. It's not about you knowing every rule or regulation in Scripture. That's not even what the Beatitudes are all about. That's not even why He's saying this. He's telling us that these will be the fruit of our relationship with Him. The more we draw near to Him, the more dependent we are upon Him, the more He showers His blessings on us. And those blessings may not look like what the world thinks true fulfillment and satisfaction looks like. But what we will find is even in the midst of the darkest of days, we're okay because He's in control and we're close to Him. A lot of times we complain about how confusing God is. How hard it is to find His will. But the darkness is not in Him. The darkness is in our hearts. See, purity and closeness to God leads to clarity. The more your heart is free of idolatry and lust, the more you'll see what God sees. You'll value what God values. You'll love what God loves. But listen, if you're not praying, and you're not reading the Bible, and you're not spending time with 
with His children and worship and serving and ministering to others, why in the world would you expect God to reveal His will to you? How many times does He have to say, look, you, you don't come talk to me at all. You don't read what I've sent to you. You're not listening or meditating on my word. You're not, you're not involved in the ministry that I've called you to. And all of a sudden now you want to question me about whether or not you get what you want? How can those two completely polar opposite lives exist together? God bless me, but let me do whatever I want to. That's not the way it works. You have to be willing to submit to Him and be pure in heart and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. The next question, do you live as a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When you have a conflict, there are almost always two sides to that conflict. And both of them feel they're right, otherwise one of them would acquiesce. They would, re they would say, you know what, you're right. But when you have a conflict, both sides believe they're right. Neither can make peace because he or she feels like his side's going to lose out and they'll be wronged in the end. So a peacemaker is someone who is willing to say, look, I value the relationship more than I value being right. Now he's not talking about here on fundamental doctrinal issues. He's not talking about the gospel. That's not what he's talking here. Everyday normal conflicts. Peacemakers are like Jesus. Jesus was clearly right. We were clearly in the wrong. But he didn't surrender his position. He didn't change his mind about sin or about the, the, our need for a sacrifice. He didn't. But he valued us. So he prioritized the relationship even over vindication and he was willing to go to the cross in shame, full of ridicule, in order to win us back. This is what God has called us to do, to make peace, not to give up the right, not, not for us to, to stop believing in truth, not for us to not stand firm on the Word of God, but to be willing to say, I care about you, the atheist, the Muslim. I care about you, even though our worldview may be completely opposite. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to share the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ with you in a way that you are able to understand, to believe, and to respond to. Now, they may not accept it, but that's not the point. Your desire is to make peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share truth in love. And when you do that, here's what's going to happen. Not everybody's going to want to hear it. So here's another question for you. Do you get persecuted for your faith. It looks like two separate ones, but they really go together, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who value being right with God above all things, above all people. Yeah, you want to be a peacemaker, but you can't give up truth. And when you're trying to share the truth in love with other people, sometimes they're not going to want to receive it. Sometimes your own family members, your own coworkers, your friends, they're going to turn their backs on you. They're going to run away from you. And you see, at some point in your life, we all suffer. And at some point in our life, it'll all come to an end. We will die some much quicker than expected but at least have the satisfaction 
that you're suffering for the right reasons. To know that you've pleased God, that you have done your duty, that you have eternity to look forward to, no matter what happens to you on this earth, no matter what disease strikes you, no matter what famine hits you, no matter what financial hardship or relational issues, no matter how many people that you love turn their back on you, no one can ever take eternity from you because that is firm in the grace and mercy of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, watch this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus went to the cross, he did so with joy because he knew why he was doing it. He was doing it for the glory of God and for our souls. In order to save us, I want to have the same type of joy when I go to the grave. Maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe that's 20 years from now. Maybe it's 30 years from now. I want to know the joy of my Heavenly Father. And it means we have to have different priorities than the rest of the world. And that's why he closes in this next few sections by reminding us that not only will God bless us because of our character, but God will bless you for your influence. Did you know you can be right with God and you can stay close to Him and you can still never really truly fully use that to influence other people. But God wants to bless you because of your influence. Jesus wasn't just simply good. Jesus was good, and he was good towards and for others. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or on a stand, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Just real quickly as we close out today, I want you to look at this. If everything we just saw was true, and your happiness and your joy and your satisfaction and your fulfillment is dependent upon God completely, and God has poured out His blessings on you, and He wants to use you for His glory as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, then how can you possibly keep it to yourself? He wants you to use that until your dying breath to share that message with other people. In other words, don't be contaminated by the world. Don't, don't fall into that nonsense way of thinking about God wanting you to be happy. I can do whatever I want to, because God wants me to feel good. He wants me to get the most out of life. That's not what abundant life means. God wants you to do the most that you could for His glory with your life. It's not about what you want. It's about what He wants and what He can do through you and finding your satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. You can't live like the world and expect to be blessed by God. But don't be contaminated by the world, but instead let your light shine to the world you're here not to be like them but you're here to share with them you can't look like the world and bring glory to god john 8 12 i'm the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life here, here's what this passage really means does god want you to be happy yes but he wants you to be happy in him he wants you to be happy 
by surrendering to him. He wants you to find your joy and your fulfillment and your satisfaction in Jesus Christ, your Savior. You're going to influence people, whether it's for God's glory or for selfish gain. That's really the question today as we look at this passage of Scripture. Only one way leads to true, eternal joy and blessing. Bill was a drunk. He was converted at a city mission. Before his conversion, he'd gained a reputation as an alcoholic and just a really despised member of society. Nobody thought there was any hope for Bill. But when he was converted, everything changed. He became the most caring person at the mission. He spent all his days there doing whatever needed to be done for others, for the mission itself. There's never anything that was asked of him that he considered beneath him. Man, he'd, he'd lived such a hard life anyway of his own choosing, whether it was cleaning up vomit left by some other alcoholic or scrubbing toilets used by the men that had left them completely filthy. Bill did it every time it was asked of him with a heart filled with gratitude for all that the people there and God had done for him. He could be counted on to feed any man who wandered in off the street, to care for his needs when he was unable to care for himself. One evening after the mission director delivered his evangelistic message to the usual crowd of solemn, despondent men, drooped heads, one of them came down the altar and kneeled to pray, crying out for God to change him. That repentant drunk kept yelling, kept shouting, Oh God! Make me like Bill. Make me like Bill. Make me more like Bill. And the director of the mission leaned over and said, Hey, brother, wouldn't it be better if you prayed, Make me like Jesus? After thinking about it for a few seconds, the man looked up and asked him, Is Jesus like Bill? What an incredible testimony. For us to be able to say to the world, no, we're doing our best to be like Jesus. But that they would be able to be around us long enough to know we're not like the rest of the world. Something is different. We don't find our joy, our happiness, our satisfaction and fulfillment in material possessions or health, wealth, and prosperity. We're not looking to be like the rest of the world. We're looking to be like Jesus. People desperately need to see him. Some of them will never read scripture. Some of them won't even know the love and the gospel of Jesus if they don't see it and hear it from us. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, that's why Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, according to Jesus, happiness is not a set of circumstances. It's a result of a, of a right relationship with God. Most of us think happiness is found in circumstances or things that happen to us. If this happens, I'll be happy. Our English word happiness comes from the word happening. You're happy when what you want to have happen happens in your life. And when what you want to have happen doesn't happen, you're not happy. But according to Jesus, happiness is not rooted in what happens to you. 
Happiness is the result of being rightly related to the one who made you. That's where true joy comes from. So here's the question for you. If life didn't change at all for you from this moment forward, your situation didn't improve, your marital status didn't change, your career didn't progress, your body didn't feel any better, could you be happy with life? See, none of the things that we think we need to be happy happened to Jesus in his life. In many ways, what happened to Jesus was like our worst fear. He was single his whole life. He never owned a home. He was abandoned by all of his friends. He was misunderstood and maligned by people that should have drawn near to him. And yet, for us, he endured the joy of going to the cross. He had joy because of his willingness to put the will of the Father and purpose of the Creator into his life. The happiness you're looking for is not found in what happens to you. The happiness you're looking for is because of what happened through Jesus Christ. Being rightly related to Jesus. Secure in Jesus. Living like Jesus. So here's a question for you. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? See, all of these promises are found only for those who are in a right relationship with Him. They've turned from themselves. They've turned from the world. They've turned to Jesus. Does God want you to be happy? Absolutely. But probably not the same way you think you want to be happy. The way He wants you to be happy is far greater and eternal. But you have to come to Him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, in this room are people that are watching, that are struggling with circumstances. God, we don't always have the answer for circumstances. Sometimes they're way out of whack. Sometimes we want everything to be different. Sometimes we feel like if just one thing would be different. Here's the thing. God, we know we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world, but you are good. Your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love endure forever. And you've called us to draw near to you. Father, help us to stop trying to figure out how to make you do what we want. And God, help us just to draw near. To run to you. To set aside all the hindrances this world throws at us. And to surrender our life to you. God, if there are people that are watching this that need to surrender in repentance and faith for salvation, let today be a day of salvation. If there are people today that are saved, but they're still just totally and completely weighed down with all the expectations that they've placed on this life, God, help them to set all that aside and run to you. Lord, we want you to use us for your glory. We want you to use us for the cause of Christ. We want you to use us for the lost souls of our brothers and sisters, our neighborhoods, for everyone that we come in contact with. God, we want you to receive the glory. So help us to draw near to you to find our hope, our assurance, our peace, our comfort, our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our joy in you and you alone. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.